Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. It's Saturday, the 23rd of April today, and thanks for your patience in waiting out the gap between episodes. Amongst other things, my family and I have finally moved home to Canberra, and we have a logistical mountain to climb to get our lives set up again, which I expect will take the better part of the remainder of this year to do fully. Of course, here in Australia, the big news is we are in an election campaign, and it's been a surprising first week. We ourselves have already devoted two episodes to the election, episode 92, where Alan and I conducted our own foreign policy election debate, and our last episode, 94, where we covered major foreign policy speeches by Prime Minister Morrison and leader of the opposition, Anthony Albanese. We noted, indeed lamented in those episodes, that foreign policy would likely not play a major role during the campaign. Oh, how wrong we were, as foreign policy was front-page news for much of this past week, after it was announced that Solomon Islands and China have officially signed a security treaty. Now, this story began to gather steam in late March, with the leak on social media of a draft security agreement between Solomon Islands and China that would significantly expand security cooperation between the two countries, including to enable Honiara to request Beijing send armed police or military forces, allow Beijing, with Honiara's consent, to deploy forces to protect the safety of Chinese personnel and projects, and enable Chinese ship visits to for resupply and generally make stopovers. Now, it's important to note that we do not know the final text of the deal, though figures close to the government have acknowledged that it is pretty close to the draft that was leaked. This leak first appeared on the account of an advisor to the Malaitan provincial governor, Premier Daniel Suidani, who has clashed with Prime Minister Sogavare in recent years, in particular over Solomon Islands' decision to switch diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to the PRC in 2019. There are a number of angles to this story, so it will be the sole focus of today's episode. We must start with Solomon Islands itself. One of the major precursors of this agreement were the violent protests and riots that occurred in November of last year, which we discussed back in episode 88. As you explained then, Alan, tensions between the two large islands of Guadalcanal and Malaita, including around the switch from Taiwan to China, were one driving force, although discontent with the leadership of Prime Minister Sogavare is not limited to any individual province. Two important points coming out of those November riots First, the Chinese community in Honiara suffered especially during the violence, as they have during previous episodes. And second, Australia sent a security contingent to help restore order, which was done not only at the request of the Solomon Islands government, but pursuant to a formal bilateral security treaty between the two governments that was concluded in 2017. And this was the first time the treaty was activated. As it turns out, The day prior to the leak, the two governments, Australia and Solomon Islands, had issued a joint statement that this, quote, Solomon Islands International Assistance Force, its name, 
would be extended again at the request of Honiara until the end of 2023. So, Alan, can you put us in the shoes of Prime Minister Sogavare and his government and explain their interests, both strategic and perhaps domestic politics, in exploring this kind of security cooperation with Beijing? Darren, welcome back too. Can I say it's great, great to have you actually in the same city. I want to reinforce the point you made at the beginning that we still don't know quite what it is we're discussing. The text of the agreement, as you said, has not been made public and Solomon Islands government has specifically ruled out establishing a Chinese base. And I think when people read headlines about bases, they were probably imagining something like Subic Bay or Pearl Harbour. And that's, I think, not going to happen, but it still leaves a range of other possibilities, some of which would be uncomfortable for Australia. Back to your question. We're talking about Melanesia here, so I think we begin with the domestic rather than the strategic interests involved, possibly personal interests too, although we don't know. Certainly, Defence Minister Dutton has made that accusation. Competition for influence between China and Taiwan played out for many years in the small states of the Pacific as Beijing tried to squeeze the international space in which Taipei could operate. But Solomon Islands is unusual in the degree to which this competition became identified with specific political and regional rivalries between the leaders on those two main islands of Malata and Guadalcanal. Each of them used the resources they could attract from their chosen patrons to bolster their political position. With the switch in recognition, as you said, from Taipei to Beijing in 2019, Prime Minister Sogavari triumphed and the security agreement is a consequence of this new arrangement. Now, look, on the strategic side of the agenda, I doubt that Solomon Islands considerations have dwelt much on geopolitics or clashes between arcs of autocracy and liberal democracies (laughs) or the future of great power competition in the Pacific. It's probably more realistic to think of the Sogavari interests as tactical. It's certainly a way of signalling to Australia that despite the resources and funding we've provided, we shouldn't take Solomons for granted. And it's a way of cementing a continuing flow of Chinese development cooperation. And on the Chinese side as well, whatever else it may be, and we'll come back to that, it's certainly a way of capturing Canberra's attention and complicating its life. And as we saw in the dispatch of Kurt Campbell from the NSC with a multi-agency American group to speak to the Solomons government over the weekend, it's a way of attracting Washington's attention too. This is not by any means the first time that Solomon Islands and Australia have had conflicting interests. 30 years ago, I spent a very intense couple of days in Honiara as a prime ministerial envoy trying to persuade the then prime minister, Solomon Mamaloni, to lift a ban he'd placed on RAAF flights across Solomon Islands airspace because his government was uh, displeased with Australia's support for Port Moresby in the civil conflict that was then underway on Bougainville. And Bougainville, of course, is part of that same island chain. I didn't think then, and I don't think now, that there is any interest on the part of the government in Honiara enforcing a profound or permanent breach with Australia. The consequences would be too significant for that, but it is a way of signalling a refusal to be taken for granted. 
Mm. As I understand it, there are two justifications given. The first is about improving internal security. Solomon Islands is a diverse place and there are multiple cleavages creating governance challenges, especially with regards to security, and insecurity hampers economic development. The second justification is that this is also about the security of current and future Chinese projects, the Chinese embassy itself, perhaps, and their citizens. Both these motivations raise immediate questions. First, is the significant Australian assistance, which is explicitly about bolstering internal security, including training and actual boots on the ground, is that insufficient? Has it been deemed insufficient? Have the Australians refused specific requests to do more? Uh, One former Prime Minister, Danny Phillip, claimed just a few days ago that a senior Australian diplomat had told the Solomon Islands government during the riots last year that Australia's presence was not to protect Chinese interests. The High Commissioner said this was not correct and pointed out that Australian security personnel are under the command of the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force. Another query is, were there implied threats made by the Chinese to reduce or withdraw their engagement because of security concerns? And even if this concern was raised by Beijing, Were other alternatives short of this major decision explored? So from my vantage point, neither of these explanations gets us there. As you foreshadowed, Alan, this makes one look to domestic politics and perhaps not the question of public insecurity, but insecurity of the government itself and the possibility that what the government is looking for is the ability to respond to threats posed to its political legitimacy. But look, before we get to the politics, let's turn to the agreement itself, again with the caveat that we only have the leaked draft to go on. A nice piece first published in The Conversation by Joanne Wallace and Cheslaf Tuberwitz of the University of Adelaide points to various red flags, including the purposes in which Chinese forces could be deployed are vague. It's unclear how much operational authority Solomon Islands would retain once it gives its initial consent to a deployment. There are questions of jurisdiction and privilege and immunity that are to be negotiated separately. And there are fairly strict confidentiality clauses, though given that status of forces agreements are politically sensitive documents, I'm not sure how much of a departure this is from standard practice. Alan, what types of arguments would you have made to Honiara to question the merits of this agreement? I'm pretty sure these would be the same arguments that have been put by diplomats in Honiara and the officials uh, we've sent in. Uh, They would be, compare this with the Australian security agreement. If the Chinese don't want it to be public, why is that? What control will the Solomons government have over the actions and behaviour of Chinese deployed under any arrangement? Is it more in your interests or Beijing's, I would ask? What does this mean for the rest of the region? Chinese economic involvement is entirely a matter for the Solomons, but the idea that this has to be supported by force in some circumstances sounds deeply imperialist. So that's where I'd begin. Mm. To me, what is crucial is that the internal security of a country is probably the most fundamental function of governance. And how you do it will authentically represent the nature of your politics and political institutions. This means if Solomon Islands police forces are receiving training from Chinese counterparts, and for that matter, working alongside 
Chinese boots on the ground in security operations, it seems inevitable that the nature of the Chinese system and practices will find its way in and therefore affect the way local law enforcement does their jobs. And we don't need to look any further than the way in which the agreement was negotiated in secret without public debate, lawmakers kept in the dark, and a lack of notification to other international partners to see, I would argue, Chinese methods already shaping the way Solomon Island's government is acting. And you could add to this assessments that the media environment has deteriorated since the recognition switch in 2019, including harassment of journalists, though the government denies that there are any restrictions on media freedom. And this is why I think the reaction of the Solomon Islands political system will be crucial. Will there be a backlash? And how much of a corrective can that be to the problematic processes through which this agreement came into being and its future implications for Solomon Islands sovereignty? In short, will Sogovare face real political costs for doing this? And if you follow the logic of political survival above all, you can get to some pretty dark places. And here is my fear. In China, there is no difference between the security of the Chinese Communist Party and the security of the state. They are one and the same thing. And I worry that a Solomon Islands government or an individual leader, whether it's Sogovare or a future successor, will make a similar calculation, that political threats to their leadership become grounds to call in Chinese forces or simply just make the threat to do so as a way of deploying political power and quell opposition. Now, it's not clear that Beijing would want to put itself in the situation that's typically reluctant to get involved in these matters, but the possibility is there. And consider the criticism from the Malaitan governor, Suidani, that Australia's intervention last year, which was designed to restore law and order, was wrong because it legitimised and supported Sogavare's rule in the face of legitimate democratic opposition. And I'm 100% confident that Australia will have done everything we possibly can to maintain our utter neutrality, to focus on returning order in a manner consistent with the rule of law. I'm less confident that in similar circumstances, Chinese forces would try as hard as us to walk that line because that's just not part of their political DNA. And so it's thus not that hard for me to imagine a scenario where a Solomon Islands leader makes a politically controversial and perhaps unconstitutional decision that sparks widespread protests and perhaps violence. Australia is asked for help, but we are reluctant because we are worried about being seen to support that decision. Would Beijing then step in to fill the void? Past practice of the Chinese suggests they're reluctant to send in their own forces, but as China's interests expand, its methods could well expand with it. Yeah, my final point is what's really disappointed me about the media coverage here in Australia and the public debate, which is focused on the military angle and what it might mean for regional security down the track. And we'll come to that debate today. And of course, it's understandable in a, the context of an election campaign. But it's just the latest example of depriving Solomon Islands itself of agency and focusing on ourselves rather than them. What will this mean for the future of Solomon Islands democracy and its political institutions? What does it mean for civil and political rights? I'd prefer that there was more focus on these questions. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, Darren. The next question is what we could have done about it, Alan. Labor's foreign affairs spokesperson, Penny Wong, called it, quote, the worst failure of Australian foreign policy in the Pacific since the end of World War II, end quote, 
Albanese called it a massive foreign policy failure. To me, these criticisms, if you take them at face value, imply that there is something Australia might have done to prevent this. Do you think that was possible, Al? Whenever I hear phrases like worst failure ever, I immediately think, hmm, really? And I try to think about other failures of Australian foreign policy in the Pacific, of which there have been a number. <laughs> Our inability to foresee or deal with the success of military coups in Fiji was pretty devastating. But I do accept that that didn't have the international policy implications of this agreement. Uh, could we have prevented it? Sure. I can't see why not. It just depends on whether we had sufficient warning and whether we were able to apply sufficient persuasive or coercive pressure in the right places, either us alone or in, in company with others. But a lot revolves around the question of when we knew about it and how, and some of that is appearing in the pages of our newspapers at the moment. Look, one problem when we talk about pressure is the absence of any lines of contact between Canberra and Beijing at the moment, which might have enabled us to apply pressure there as well. Now, the response to that will be, Meh, that wouldn't have mattered at all because China would just have ignored it, maybe, but we'll never know. Mm. I distinguish between the possible intelligence failure, which we, where we didn't know, versus a policy failure, where we did know but didn't do enough. And I expect we probably knew something was happening, but not precisely what. I believe the Foreign Minister, Payne, when she said she hadn't seen the draft agreement before it was leaked. And there certainly are ways that Sogavare and his people with the Chinese could have kept this secret, for example, by keeping everything offline and doing it all the negotiating in person and in hard copy paper. It would be a policy failure if we knew exactly what was coming and did little. But if we had no more than a vague idea, I can sympathise, especially given the apparent success of our assistance mission and the desire to extend it, it's not surprising that we might have expected something like this wouldn't have happened so quickly amid such secrecy. And look, zooming out, while I certainly don't think we were going to change things once the leak occurred, perhaps maybe you could argue that prior to all these events happening, we should have been even more paranoid and even more vigorous in our diplomacy. But at the end of the day, we're not going to be able to match Chinese offerings every single time. And Beijing is becoming more influential, whether we like it or not, as we've discussed many times on the podcast. So I'm not sure we could have prevented it, Alan, though I am intrigued by your raising of the idea of coercive pressure. But let's come back to that. I think it's worth reiterating long-term criticism of Australian foreign policy that every government across time has taken the region for granted. It's been deaf and indeed patronising to the region's concerns and insufficiently responsive to dynamics on the ground. But it's not just us, of course. Maybe the only thing that might have stopped this from happening would have been if the Americans had an equal diplomatic footprint to the Chinese. But of course, Washington closed down its embassy in 1993 and only recently announced that it's going to reopen it. There is not a lot of knowledge in DC, it seems, about the region. So I think the failures go well beyond what Canberra could have done by itself. Darren, I just want to say that I think you're being a bit unfair to decades of Australian foreign policy there. I, we have, of course, made mistakes in the Pacific and we have taken it for granted from time to time and we have been patronising. But I don't think that's the uh, whole story of the efforts of Australian governments and 
officials and ministers over the years. So I'd be a bit kinder to us than than you've just been. Sure, sure. I, I, I mean, I make that point as context for the, on the question of whether we could have prevented this from happening. Yeah. Um, and look, our efforts have been made in good faith. Our diplomats and civil servants are obviously trying their best. But my understanding is that there is a consistent refrain from the region, which inevitably clouds this kind of scenario. Yeah. Uh, let's turn to what the government actually did do. And what struck me most was how explicitly vigorous it was. Most of Australia's senior leadership weighed in, expressing their concerns, including the Prime Minister and senior military figures. We saw a former podcast guest, Paul Simon, who was the Director General of ASIS, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, as well as Andrew Shearer, the Director General of National Intelligence, who runs the Office of National Intelligence, both visit Honiara. More remarkably, the Minister of the Pacific, Liberal Senator Zed Seselja, from here in Canberra, travelled to Honiara this past week during an election campaign in which his seat is not 100% safe to make an in-person intervention with Solomon Allen's leadership, arguing that they should at least press the pause button before proceeding. Obviously, none of these efforts were successful. So, Alan, I just can't recall that any real previous cases where the Australian government so desperately and publicly wanted something from a neighbour. The case that comes to mind, I guess, is the Bali Nine and the ultimate execution of two Australians by the Indonesian government in 2015. But I think the category of individual Australians somehow caught up in uh, foreign justice systems is a bit different. Do any historical comparisons come to mind for you? If you're old enough, and of course, Darren, you are not, you can think back to the great Libyan panic of 1987 when Foreign Minister Bill Hayden made a dramatic flight to Wellington to try to persuade the New Zealanders to join us in regional action to prevent the establishment of a Libyan People's Bureau in Port Vila, Vanuatu. This was a, an earlier example of our worries about outside involvement in the Pacific. Uh, Australian diplomats fanned out across the Pacific. And in that case, we succeeded. But the stakes, of course, with Libya were much smaller than the stakes with China. <laughs> well, I admit, Alan, that 1987 sticks in my memory only as a year that my beloved Carlton Blues won the Australian Rules Football Premiership. So that was a happier time on that front, for sure. How are you thinking about the instruments of statecraft available to the Australian government and our partners to neutralise or even reverse the impact of this decision? Whenever you talk about diplomacy, people think you are saying, be nice, be polite. Uh, and that's not it at all. Diplomacy, which is the tactics for achieving your foreign policy strategy, should always be pointed and sometimes hard-edged. It all depends on what you need at any given moment to shape another country's actions. So in this case, our objective should probably not be to achieve immediately the formal abrogation of the agreement. That's, I think, a bridge too far, but to ensure that nothing in it is used to harm Australian interests. And that means ensuring that our ministers and senior officials are paying close attention to Solomon politics and that as soon as the elections are over, the foreign minister, whoever it is, uh, goes to Honiara and not to Honiara alone, but to other regional capitals as well to remind everyone that there are region-wide issues at play here and that Australia has other friends. Ah, Alan, you're foreshadowing content for our future incoming government brief episode. 
Yeah, well, that, that, that's good. Yeah, I look forward to that one. Look, we, we need to ensure as well that our High Commission in Honiara is sufficiently resourced to have a comprehensive understanding of Solomon's politics and therefore the most effective way of persuading local leaders that we have important common interests in the peaceful development of the region and reminding of them, them of the benefits that flow to the Solomons from close relations. You mentioned other partners as well. Of the non-island states, New Zealand, which is presumably working from the same sort of information and analysis as we are, is most important. It's always, in my view, worth checking in with Wellington. Japan will be influential. The EU is preoccupied with Ukraine at the present, but they are also going to matter in the long run. But we need to be careful, especially after the Kurt Campbell caravan has passed through, that we're not making it appear that Australia is acting on behalf of a Western grouping interested only in US-China competition. I, look, I endorse all of that, Alan, but I'm going to double down on my criticism here that you, that you called me out on a few moments ago, which is, again, not of our diplomats, but of Australia's political class, because these solutions are the ones that have long been on the table and they start with a shift in mindset. Stop thinking of Solomon Islands and the region as our backyard or our natural sphere of influence and stop taking them for granted. It just seems like a, a thoroughly self-centred frame seems almost in our DNA because by talking about this in the last week through the lens of China and how it will undermine our security, we are sidelining Solomon Islands itself. And this comes from both sides of politics, despite Labor's claim that this is the greatest failure since World War II in the Pacific. You have examples from both the Liberals with Karen Andrews and Labor's former leader, Bill Shorten, referring to the region again as Australia's backyard. And then you have the Prime Minister himself, who on the 20th of April at a press conference said, quote, the real risk, I think, is being exposed, the risk of China seeking to interfere within our region. I have known about and have been taking strong action about it. I was the one who stood up and called out China on the pandemic. I was the one who called out their interference, end quote. We might think of this as interference, but is that how Solomon Islands sees it? Might they not see it as Beijing being responsive to their interests and them, Solomon Islands, taking positive action in their own interests, as Morrison himself would say, to increase their security? I worry it's being seen as patronising and just a continuation of everything that's wrong with our policy stance. And look, if you look at the high-level attention flocking to Honiara following this decision, Kurt Campbell, as you've mentioned, a Japanese vice foreign minister is going, Senator Seselja, etc. It really might be strengthening Pacific views that we only care about them really when China does. Could this then paradoxically give others a reason to court more attention from China? It obviously wouldn't be the first time that a developing country gets American, Australian, Japanese, Taiwanese dollars by flirting with the Chinese money. Look, these are small countries trying to do the very best they can for their people and sometimes themselves. Why wouldn't they go to the highest bidder? But look, putting my political scientist hat back on, the calculation I make is that for this deal to fail, it needs to impose costs greater than its benefits. You flagged the possibility, Alan, of Australia using coercive pressure 
But to me, that seems like it would be hard to do. What would be the cost-imposing threats that we could make that would work? And after all, aren't we the ones loudly supporting a region free of coercion? You know my views on coercion, Darren. Coercion exists in every relationship, whether it's between a parent and her four-year-old child or states in the international system. It's impossible to be free of it. In the case of governments, it's the easiest way for them to achieve their ends at minimum cost to themselves. It's a inbuilt into our relationships. In this case, coercive pressure would be the unspoken, largely unspoken, but hinted at, threat that pressed too hard, Australia might pull out of its support for the Solomons in ways that would harm the political interests of its current government. Hmm. And that may be possible. It would be a complicated calculation that we would need real experts uh, to help us with. I think Part of the costs need to come from the political backlash at home, as I've already mentioned, but also I think part will need to come from the region itself. We really need to see widespread disapproval from other Pacific Island nations that this decision is outside the bounds of acceptable behaviour. Another reason, I suppose, for the foreign minister of the next government to make that regional trip, you suggested, Alan, and to talk to the other leaders, hear what they think, engage with them on on the risks they see in this deal and really letting them lead in the response. Look, let's finish off by thinking about the strategic implications, although if you've been following Australian media for the past few days, you've probably got your fill of that. The Australian Strategic Policy Institute Executive Director, Peter Jennings, told the Sydney Morning Herald that Chinese ships and aircraft were likely to arrive in Solomon's within weeks because the deal would absolutely, in his words, lead to a military base. There is concern within the United States, obviously, and as you flagged, Alan, you saw the National Security Council, Indo-Pacific Coordinator Kurt Campbell, visit Solomon Islands yesterday, leading a delegation of officials to discuss those issues. The White House statement that followed said that Sogovare reiterated to the Americans that there would be no military base, no long-term presence, and no power projection capability under the security deal signed with China. And the statement then went on to say that the US itself would have significant concerns and respond accordingly if permanent military presence was established. Well, there's coercion for you. Is this the beginning, Alan, of the imminent militarization? <laughs> is, 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 is it not? The US would respond accordingly? Doesn't that make the point I was making before that uh, uh, coercive uh, pressure is built into every relationship? I cannot deny, Alan, I cannot deny. But let me ask, is this the beginning, do you think, of the imminent militarization of the South Pacific? Uh, Or are we all overreacting a bit? How should we think about the long-term security risks posed by this agreement and our capacity to mitigate those risks at various points in the future? I, I guess the good thing about Peter Jennings' bold prediction is that we will be able to verify it with, within weeks, which is always good. We've said several times that Sagavari has said and repeated to the Americans that there won't be a base. There have been earlier predictions of Chinese bases in Fiji and Vanuatu in 2018, which haven't got anywhere so far at least. As I said earlier, I and mean, the phrase conjures up 
images of huge naval bases. But even at their most fanciful, I don't think that's what Beijing is thinking about. The Southwest Pacific does remain pretty low on China's lists, uh, list of strategic priorities. Not off that list. Uh, there are obvious advantages if you can do it at low cost in complicating America's and Australia's planning. But China's main game is always going to be North Asia, uh, the South China Sea, Southeast Asia, Central Asia. So keeping a cool head, understanding the long game, engaging diplomatically as well as militarily is going to be critical for us. The old order has passed and a new one is being shaped. Acknowledging it's not my field of expertise, it does seem implausible to me that moves could be made coming out of this agreement that would significantly alter the on-water balance of power uh, in this immediate region. But at the same time, it is a strategically significant location. There is a reason a major battle was fought there in World War II. And so if you're worried about what might happen 20 or 30 years from now, I suppose there is an argument that the time to head that off is before it gets going and develops momentum. But that sort of depends on whether we could have done anything in the short term to stop this. I'm sceptical that anything will happen in the short to medium term or even somewhat into the long term that will affect Washington's calculus. But I do accept the point made by ADF figures this week that would give China the scope to make our lives a bit more difficult here in Australia, for example, in terms of, of surveillance. But I wonder whether we might just have to live with that because we have not demonstrated that we have the power or the influence to extinguish these risks entirely. So I hope, and to reiterate points I've already made, that this is a wake-up call to spark a substantive shift in how we engage with the region. In this case, it means the focus has to be on helping Solomon Islands, exploring the implications of this agreement for them themselves and their democracy and their institutions, and then working with the region to realise its vision for security and prosperity rather than thinking about it as our backyard. Anyway, Alan, let's wrap up with our final segment, reading, listening and watching. What do you have for us this week? Okay, I've added another substack to my growing list. Comment is freed, which gives us the writing about contemporary development, contemporary developments from Sir Lawrence Friedman and his son, Sam Friedman, who's an education specialist and writes about British politics. If there was ever a person who who epitomises the phrase, the great and the good, surely Laurie Friedman, emeritus professor of uh, war studies at King's College London, covered in decorations, literally wrote the book about strategy, key member of the Chilcot inquiry into how Britain got into the Iraq war. So it's, it's great that he's delivering regular and unfailingly insightful commentary on what's happening in Ukraine in Particular, so I recommend that. Terrific. Uh, my recommendation is a relatively short piece by Bruno Mishesh called A War of World Building in the City Journal. I'll post the link. I've recommended pieces from the former Portuguese politician and Harvard PhD before, but I should also say I've unfollowed him on Twitter because I find his tweets very often frustrating and outright wrong. But this piece is one of the most thought-provoking I've read on the question of international order and the future of international order. I won't say any more except to give it my highest recommendation. And I do wonder whether the price of coming up with some of the most engaging and interesting insights 
is also being as wrong, equally wrong you know, at other times. So food for thought. Happily, Darren, that's not the case with us and this podcast at all. Indeed, Alan. And on that note, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Annabelle Howard for research and audio editing today. And thanks also to Rory Stedding for composing our theme music. We will talk to you again soon.